Lisa Moore is an author from Newfoundland, and she has just written a first novel yes. called Alligator, which was a Giller Prize finalist and a Toronto Globe and Mail Book of the Year. Lisa Moore's wondrous first novel set in contemporary St. John's Newfoundland moves with the swiftness of an alligator in attack mode through the lives of a group of brilliantly rendered characters. Welcome to the bibliophile. Thank you. Let's get straight to the alligator on the cover. The alligator is a pretty ancient beast. Hasn't changed much. It's a survivor. I went for a driving trip through the southern states with my husband, and we went to an alligator farm. They're so still when they're not moving. <laughs> they're stiller than anything that you can imagine. And they're... They're alive, but they're stiller than anything else that's alive. Yes, and I guess they're putting that on. It's a camouflage. They look like trees, they look like logs, and they're hideously ugly, but there's something also very, very beautiful about them. I was in this boat, an airboat that was flying over the swamp, and then we just stopped, and we were very, very close to an alligator who had his jaw open, and the driver of the boat said, please put your elbow back in the boat. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I just realized that the stillness was an illusion. I saw them as well move, and they move with such grace and speed, and it's hard to imagine that something so still and heavy looking can move so quickly and with such beauty. Okay. What's interesting, I find, is that each one of your chapters sort of flips back with the names of the different characters so they really do embed themselves in your mind. Where was I going with that? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had this idea that I wanted to create the city of St. John's, show what life is like here in a snapshot. And actually, I was thinking of the paintings of Cezanne, Cubism. And uh, Cezanne, for instance, would show a bowl of oranges from many different angles at once, and mm-hmm. all those planes simultaneously sliced through each other. So you see the oranges from the top and the sides and the bottom all at once. Um, yeah, like Brock and Picasso as well, of course. Yes. Um, but I was thinking particularly about Cezanne for some reason. I think because, because it was a single object, those orange bowls, uh, bowls of oranges. And I wanted to try to show the city that way. That was my idea, and that I would I would kind of give this prismatic picture of the city through a variety of characters. And life in St. John's is like that here. There are, um, you know, everybody knows each other or knows of each other or is in some way tangentially related. Mm. And our lives affect each other, sometimes without us even knowing it. And especially in downtown St. John's, where a lot of different sort of socioeconomic backgrounds mix up together. You know, there's people who are poor living next to people who are professionals, who are, there's artists, there's thieves, there's, everybody lives together in a very small, relatively small, enclosed space. And we live near the harbor, which is a a metaphor for security and safety. That's why the book moves so quickly from character to character to character. I wanted to give an impression of, of the whole thing at once, if, if that was possible. So I want to get back to the, the alligator, the stillness of the alligator. You talk, at one point, one of your characters talks about life being sort of very calm and then bang, chaos. And that 
came to mind when you talked about this alligator being really still and then wait a minute it could take your arm off if it wants to is this is this where you're going with the alligator well my friend michael crummy uh says actually the alligator is money how money moves through these characters lives and there was a certain truth in that mm. in many ways money and the lack of it in this novel decides people's fate but i think of the alligator as the instinct for survival yeah. as well. There's nothing evil about an alligator taking down its prey. That has to happen. That's how they live. I wondered in this novel what we would each of us do in order to survive and at what point do you lose your humanity? When is it okay not to be good? And is it ever okay not to be good? Mm-hmm. Valentin who is the sort of villain in this book, the Russian a Russian immigrant who arrives in St. John's on a, a ceiling, uh, on, a sh- on a vessel, a fishing vessel, and is trapped here because the company that owns the vessel collapses. The boat hasn't paid its docking fees, and so he's stuck here with no money and no place to live. And he forges a life in the most violent of mm. ways. But his, his father was sort of dragged out when he was three or four years old and shot. And he has a child back in Russia that he wants to support. In my mind, I was thinking, how much suffering can, and, and generations of suffering can a person take before they will do anything to step out of that pattern? And also, what does it mean to be taken out of your own environment and put in an environment where you have no support and no connections, no avenue for survival? Mm. What would each of us be willing to do under those circumstances? He uses some charm. He uses his uh, his chess playing ability. He, to, he he uses anything he can to, to make uh, to make money. Yes, and he burns a house down to get the insurance. In the end, he goes too far, as far as I'm concerned. So the alligator, it's, it's ancient. It's it's one of these creatures that uh, it's, it's a bit like a rock in the sense that it doesn't ch- hasn't had to change that much to adapt or to survive it just was it was made so long ago it hasn't had to really evolve it just survives the way it was made well yes and at the same time i just looked at those alligators in the physical environment and knew i wanted them in my novel i didn't know why exactly i don't need to know exactly why i just knew that they had a shimmering kind of importance about them. I wanted. I wanted them physically in the book. Do they get into the book later on? Because I haven't come across <laughs> Yes. They're there. Okay. Physically. Also, of course, I uh, wanted to have uh, the word alligator on a book from Newfoundland because it's not what you would expect. Well, isn't that the case, though? I think a lot of what's coming out of Newfoundland isn't really what you'd expect, given the tradition of the fish and the Outport. There's a lot of interesting stuff that's coming out of Newfoundland in the last 10 years or so that uh, that is sort of unexpected. I mean, I've heard quite a bit of that from various authors that I've spoken to in the last week or so here. This is what you say in an article that, that appears in the Walrus magazine on a trip that you've just taken to Tasmania. You talk about expecting literary fiction to be universal, but also to be particular and more specifically to be accurate. What you're doing here is you're giving an accurate depiction of the particular Newfoundland experience or people experiencing their lives here. 
that have universal appeal. So there's nothing necessarily unusual about that. Why is everything going on in Newfoundland these days, or at least in the last 10 years? What, what is it? Do you have any? I mean, I'm sure you've been asked that tons of times, but I mean, it's, it's interesting just from the perspective of someone who's interested in why good literature happens. Well, it was interesting for me to go to Tasmania because the same thing is happening there. There's suddenly this, it seemed to me, explosion of literature from a place where it's a new experience, relatively new. Tasmania is considered by the world to be a very exotic place, mm. as is Newfoundland. And both Tasmania and Newfoundland are, in a certain way, coming to realize that now. And what does that mean, exotic? I think in Newfoundland it means that there's a tradition of storytelling and there's an interesting use of language, there's a, a certain cadence to the language, mm -hmm. there's a kind of wit. Born out of what? Surviving in the outport? I, I think probably, and you know, I'm talking about before television when, when people had to amuse themselves and moved from, you know, house to house for dances in the kitchen and all of that stuff. And of course, that is not my experience. I grew up in a subdivision until I was in grade four and then moved to the country. Maybe what's happening is that you're taking these roots and you're placing them in urban situations and environment that the rest of the world can then connect to. The thing is that both Newfoundland and Tasmania have always been connected to the rest of the world. While we have been isolated, it's also an illusion because there have been fishing vessels from all over the world mm. coming to Newfoundland mm. for 400 years. We sent all our fish back to Europe mm. for many, many years. But, so why is it happening now? Do you, have, do you have any idea? Like, well, there's all, there's a, let's, let's just name some of them. There's, there's Wayne Johnson. I guess he was the Wayne first. Johnson, there's Michael Winter, there's Beth Ryan, there's Ramona Deering, Michael Crummy, uh, Bernice Morgan, Joan Clark. These are all authors that, not just in Canada, but they're starting to get reputations around the world, right? right. Yes, and, and have had some of them have had reputations around the world for quite a while. For the last decade or so. Yeah, I think yeah. partly, you know, Wayne Johnson kind of cut a swath yeah. for all of us because his book sold internationally. Which was the first one that cut the first swath? I think probably The Colony of Unrequited Dreams. People became interested in the place. Well, then, of course, there's a shipping news, too, which sort of didn't necessarily get the place right, but it, it certainly put the, the name Newfoundland on the map. It did. The literary map. It's an interesting question, that whole question about getting a place right and mm. what that means. Mm. Because I certainly would never want to suggest that people can't write about places that they're not from. Yeah. It's important that people imagine places. Well, it's, it's also, I, think, I read that you've said that it's, it was fiction. But then again, I think that gets back to this point about you're wanting, or us, the reader, wanting accuracy. And maybe there wasn't that in uh, The Shipping News. Well, it's the notion that places in the world really are different from each other in some real idiosyncratic, weird, complicated way. And that's what what we want when we read about a place that we've never been or that we are interested in. We want somehow that idiosyncratic weirdness to be on the page. Or perhaps what we want, you use the prism throughout the alligator. We want a, a shard, a different, unique take on something that may be particular but also has a universal impact. Maybe that's what you're giving the world here. I think that's what everybody makes an effort to do when they write from a place that they know well. You also talk about the fact that coming from uh, or living on an island at the, at the periphery and talking about imaginary landscapes still relatively wild. 
And you actually point in this article in the walrus to Michael Winter and him talking about an island in a pond in an island and going on about Newfoundland when in fact that was all... <laughs> It was all made up, but it was the beautiful cadence he talked about. Yes, and and the wit. In that paragraph of Michael's, there's something very particular to Newfoundland humor, I think. He's posturing. He's pulling your leg a bit. Yeah, he's pretending that he's going to give you you an interesting tidbit about Newfoundland, but in fact, he's made the whole thing up. It's about the joy of storytelling, that little paragraph. Well, let's get into the story then, shall we? Okay. (laughs) Maybe you can give a synopsis of alligator oh that's really hard to do my favorite character in the novel is a boy named frank who's 19 years old he's recently lost his mother he hasn't known his father lived very poor three generations of welfare i think and desperately wants to make his way in the world and has saved his money since childhood and bought a hot dog stand and he comes in contact with a malevolent force in the form of valentin and is in danger of losing everything. But although he's very vulnerable, he's the moral force of the novel, I guess. He's sort of the, the Calvinistic, hard-working, uh, shrewd businessman. I guess, but he's also gentle and giving and somehow, in his 19-year-old way, visionary, I think. I can hardly say where he came from, but he feels very real to me. And I used to wake up when I was while I was writing this novel and feel frightened for him and then remember that he was just fiction and it was okay he was going to be fine it's very easy to get very attached this is what i found to these characters many of them have gone through some pretty difficult stuff so really what we're doing is we're following the lives of five or six very um well-defined we we get to know these people in the in your novel in a way that, that you don't really get often to know characters this well in others I, I it's really focused on these characters it's, do you think that's just my experience uh, with having read from what i've read so far yeah so it's just this there's a real strong connection with a lot of these characters that uh, more so than in other works that i've read yeah interesting <laughs> i'm talking with lisa moore who's the author of alligator I've just come across this passage that uh, talks about uh, the uh, the connection I was trying to make with the alligator. It's on page 46. of uh, Now, I've got the American uh, advanced uh, reading copy here, but it's... Uh, she had come to think of life not as a progression of days full of minor dramas, some tragedy, small joys, and carefully won accomplishments, as she figures most people think of life, but rather as a stillness that would occasionally be interrupted by blasts of chaos. Is that still alligator? That is like the alligator, yes. Of course, I wasn't thinking that when I wrote it. But mm. you're, you're right. That's an interesting connection. One of the, the, the laudatory or praising little blurbs on the back here talks about vivid, imagistic, resonant... I like this one here, well-turned phrase. A keen ear for both dialogue and well-turned phrase, and the writing is suffused with reckless joy. I, I agree that there's, there's there's a lot of lovely little, and again, this is why I read, personally, anyway. I just, I read for style. I read for those sweet sentences that I can just take away from the book and 
put in my own little book and just enjoy. And so we're going to have to read out some of those uh, as soon as I find them. <laughs> Don't flip too long. <laughs> but, uh, but I do want to talk about light because you use light a great deal. The prisms and the way it does, the things that it does with light and the layers and light as liquid. There's a lot of light as liquid going mm. on here. Is light an important part of life here, particularly? Oh, well, I think, you know, recently I, in, I, I wrote a piece about David Blackwood, the Newfoundland printmaker. Mm-hmm. The guy that, that did the ones where the, all the houses are being pulled along behind the ships? That's some of what he's done. I mean, he's done a tremendous amount of work, and the work is very varied. He's done paintings and prints and monoprints and abstract work as well as the iconic Newfoundland images that I think most Canadians are familiar with. Often light is used as a metaphor for good and evil but with David Blackwood's work I think it's a subtler representation of light and it's the difference between hope and despair. There's an image of a a ceiling disaster where the men are waiting on the ice to be rescued and, and a man is holding up a torch against all the blackness of the ocean. They're caught on an ice blow. The light there is not about good or evil. It's about hope, and it's held out against the despair of the natural darkness. So again, it's sort of survival. Light helps you survive. Light, hope is what helps you get through. Yeah. I'm interested in all the different things that light can be, I guess. What it can mean. It's so full of mythic symbolism. I can't help think of William Blake when I think of light and his use of it with uh, various beautiful illustrations that he did with his poetry. But also, I want the reader to see these scenes as though they were watching a film or as though they were actually present. And so I have to engage, or any writer has to engage the senses in a very physical way. And the way we see is with light. If there were no light, we, we wouldn't see objects. And so the way light strikes, if you can put on the page the way light strikes the various things that we look at, then I think those objects become more three-dimensional and solid for the reader. Yeah, and obviously, as you say, the light, but the contrast, the dark, the shadows, the, the, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite chapters, as we talked about Valentin and him being sort of the, the, the dark, uh, evil uh, character Russian, and obviously had a pretty tough start to his life, is uh, when he starts off, uh, we start off sitting in the bar with seven shots, seven shot glasses in front of him. We go through that chapter, he, he keeps repeating that he's going to burn down the, this house and get the insurance. And there's a, there is a lovely sort of a cadence. There's the use of repetition. There's a poetry to the writing, I find. But this particular chapter, you start off with these shots, and then you move away from, from that. Then you wind it up, because he comes back to the shot classes at the end of the chapter. It sort of reminds you, oh, wait a minute, yeah, that's where we were. Uh, I really admired that technique. That is the way we experience life, you know, that we raise a cup of coffee to our lips and in that moment so many things can flash through our mind we can go back to childhood we can and it does and it constantly does driving the car you pass a street where you had a romance or you played ball as a child and all of that flashes through in an instant and it's gone and forgotten 
not necessarily retrieve, perhaps until we're going to sleep at night and, and something comes back to us. You do make reference at one point about living in the present, and that is such an important uh, lesson, a Buddhist lesson. But this book is really interesting in that sense. It's you read, you, you start reading about specific events in the present, and then you realize, oh wait a minute, we've drifted back into a memory, just as you would, as you say, uh, just as most of us live our lives. We don't live in the present, which which maybe takes away from the experience of the present, but this book... But that is the present. The present is the, the present. flash of all those memories running through us while we're in the present. That is the moment. Well, I mean, the lesson, I think, for Buddhists is that if you really want to be happy and contented, then you observe your mind doing this and bring it back to the present, because you're missing the present if you're living in your memories in the past. But see, I think that... I don't think you are missing the present. I think that is the present. I think that the present is always full of all that came before. That is part of the present. And that if we But it informs the present. But if your mind is thinking about, you know, a relationship you may have had in the in the black forest, but now you're making a cup of tea and it boils over and burns your foot off. But aren't those two things married in a complete way? That is the present? And if I ignored that black forest memory, I, I wouldn't be in the present. I wouldn't be paying attention. That's part of what the present is. The making of the cup of tea would be meaningless without that black forest memory. It wouldn't be meaningless. You'd be paying attention to it, maybe enjoying the actual making of the tea and the smell of it and the, the taste of it more because you're actually there doing that. But right? it must be something about the smell and the taste of the tea that yeah. brings back the black forest. I guess it all depends on what you're what you're willing to call time. Mm -hmm. You know, I I am willing to say that should I think of the black forest while making a cup of tea, then the black forest is as present as the tea. They're both there, and they're both pleasurable, I suppose, the, the, the because of each other. Mm. They make each other the same moment. Yeah, I guess the argument that the Buddhists make, though, is that if you're continually living in the past, then you're missing the present, and you're gonna, you're never going to be content. Yes, I know that that is what. But you see, I, I I think that, like I'm saying, that it's not really the past. That the act of recollection, reflection, changes the present moment. It makes it more present. Sometimes people say when they're reading this, "You must really see a lot." But, of course, it's not that I see it while I'm living it. I'm reflecting. Do you know what I mean? The writing, the act of writing is a reflection. It's a, it's a bringing back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the act of writing is capturing experience that had an impact on you. I, I mean, but it's the writing itself. Part of the writing is just humdrum, matter-of-fact, day-to-day activity. You're, you're recording that. But the motivation to write is because there's something significant that you want to convey. And why are you writing it down? Well, when you're really, really present in the writing, when you're really, or for me anyway, 
when it's going well, I kind of don't exist. I'm, it's as though my fingers are trying to keep up. Sometimes I feel like I'm reading it off the screen, and that's how I know. I'm not doing it, it feels like. I mean, of course, that's an, you know, an illusion. And Yeah, that's pretty common. That's just that you're a conduit. The muse has visited you. You're capturing something that this muse is bringing to you. I guess. I, 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 yeah, I'm not quite sure how it works. I have no idea how it works. <laughs> I just know it's a lot of fun. Well, it is a lot of fun to read, I must say. There's one character, Colleen is her name. She's 19. She's upset about the pine marten, which is a little creature that lives, maybe there's only a few of them left in Newfoundland, but they're endangered species, and she wants to stop them cutting down the trees, which are the habitat for the pine marten, and so she pours a bunch of sugar in the bulldozer's gas tank and gets arrested and... Uh, and her mother's pretty upset about that. Did you ever do something like that? No, no. I I um I admire Colleen, this character. I think I was a pretty judgmental, self-righteous teenager. There's something interesting to me about those kinds of teenagers who reach a certain age where they they suddenly realize that they've inherited a world that is a complete mess. And they become full of indignation and truly believe that if they had been in charge, they never would have let that happen. And there's something kind of beautiful about those teenagers, but also immensely irritating. But they bring us back to ourselves, our younger selves. They're idealists and they're furious for the world not fitting their ideal Exactly, but they're also incredibly naive. And as adults, we, we know that at some point they're going to come to terms with that naivete. Perhaps a bit irresponsible. Colleen, the character Colleen, is very self-centered and lost. Her stepfather has died, whom she was very close to, so she's in the grip of grief, behaving in an abominable way, really. Many people find her completely dislikable. But I like that she just tries to destroy those bulldozers. I like that despite it all, she acts. And, of course, it's not a good way to act, but, and it's inarticulate, and it's ineffective, but it's, it's an effort. She makes an effort. Something that I don't think she regrets. She, she comes to realize, through her relation with Frank, how misguided her actions are. Well, illegal, I suppose. And misguided, eventually, as you'll see. <laughs> she goes to court. She's arrested. Then she has to sit down with the owner... Mr. Duffy of the uh, bulldozers and the logging firm, I guess it is. And a, a woman who I love, Miss Dr Ms. Drake, not a parole officer, but some social worker, social worker who you draw beautifully. And and, and it's totally ungenerously. <laughs> here, here we are. There was a whole history of resignation and maxed out credit cards in her ugly sweater. Miss Drake's skin was sallow and full of pores. She had a faint moustache and a polyester skirt, and she would not likely care too much about pine martens. <laughs> and then <laughs> you have um, Mr. Duffy saying this, Miss Clark should know that I have set traps for the 50 pine martens on my property, and I intend to barbecue them and feed them to my dogs. <laughs> I had a lot of fun writing that, of course. <laughs> it's so great to create characters who are nasty. <laughs> it's so much fun in that. 
Well, isn't that what all the actors say, too? They love to play the, the nasty part. And you can say all kinds of wickedly funny things through another... Things that I, myself, would never say or even think through the mouth of a character. Did you make any jokes at home about mm, barbecued uh, pine martins for supper? No. I, I fear for the pine martin myself. Maybe you could give us a little praisey of the pine martin. <sighs> no. <laughs> I don't know that much about them. Okay. I just know they're endangered. Can you give us then, uh, we've danced around all over the place here, I, I want to get back to the, the novel, the plots. We've got five or six characters that uh, have lives that are, uh, there's quite a bit of death. A number of them are dealing with grief, deaths of parents, of spouses. Perhaps you can then just fill in a bit more about the characters and what happens with them. Well, there's Madeline, who's a, a filmmaker, and she is kind of the uniting force of the novel, I think, because she wants to make the great Newfoundland film, the, uh, the film that will tell the story of Newfoundland. For me, she's a very positive force because there's redemption in witnessing, and that's her job. But she's suffering from minor heart attacks, and really directing a feature film is too much of a stress for her right now. She's not up to it physically. And so there's the question of whether she will get to, to make the film, get to finish it before she succumbs to illness. And Colleen, Colleen meets up with an alligator. It's funny when you said that, I started thinking of Peter Pan and the alligator. Mm. Is there an alligator in Peter Pan? Isn't there a, oh. Isn't, doesn't uh, Hook right. succumb to... I don't know. Or is it sharks? There, I think... I think you might be right. So you ripped off Peter Pan. Yeah. <laughs> Every great work of literature is a ripoff of Peter Pan, ultimately. You're not wanting to grow up. Mm-hmm. You want to say anything more about the plot, or you want to leave that alone? No, I think the plot, I, I can say it works itself out. Comment about the color blue. I like the way you deal with blue. You, you talk about her eyes being wolf blue blue as ink and I think this might have been maybe not necessarily in the in the novel but one of the articles I've just read by you the blue of a blowtorch is there something about blue here <laughs> you come through know. a blue period <laughs> I, I hadn't noticed <laughs> interestingly <laughs> my uh, editor at one point said there were too many characters with blue eyes I had to go back and change <laughs> some of the eyes <laughs> make them brown <laughs> That affected the novel quite significantly. Yes, it's the whole course of the novel changed. But I guess if everybody has blue eyes, you would certainly notice, wouldn't you? <laughs> it had to be addressed. I was, she was completely right on that. You talk about the crises that your characters uh, arrive uh, at and then try to resolve. What secret about life, what deep message do you want to convey here? Um, it's about being attentive. The characters reach certain conclusions about their own lives but for me the important thing is the language and being attentive to the small things that make our days if that makes any sense it's funny it sort of goes in the face of what you said about the tea and the, and the memory of the black forest maybe you want to be a, sorry you want to be attentive of what your mind is doing your mind is taking you to the black forest so let's let's pay attention to that but let's be aware of that but then let's also be aware of the fact that maybe it was the smell of the tea or whatever that took you there. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I guess so, yes. There, it's not as though our mind is outside of us, that we are that. 
And we don't experience a cup of tea in isolation without all the successive teas that come came before. All of our experience informs the present moment and is in the present moment, I think. Because it, just as we don't see an object without light and the way the light lands on that object, we don't drink a cup of tea without all those thousands of others of cups of tea informing that cup of tea. If I, if I had to try and boil down, it would be be attentive, experience, because we're only here for such a short time. How can you know? So give us an example of not being attentive then. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what. Uh, well, I think sometimes people people go through life doing things that they don't necessarily that they haven't chosen, that they haven't decided to do. So they sort of sleepwalk through their lives. Or they rush. They might be rushing through. Why are they rushing? I don't know. It's it's easy to rush. It's easy to rush over things. So the message then is just uh, let's just you know be attentive to what it is in your heart that really is important to you and and do it. Is that, is that the message? If there is a message, I mean, in part, I just want with this book to provide the reader with an engagement with a vision that will be pleasurable for them, an experience that they will be lost in. And, you know, every writer, when they write a, a novel, uh, and of course this is my first one, and I've come to terms with this, are asking the reader to lay aside the chair that they're sitting in and the day outside and their children and their lovers and, and everything and just fall into this for several hours and be in it. And it's such a huge thing to ask. So really what, it, what I would like to give is the pleasure of that transport. When people are engaged with a book, they are transported. And that is an extremely pleasurable experience. And it's pleasurable because of what's not written down. Because what's not written down is what the reader brings to the book. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but that's exactly what a movie doesn't allow you because a movie does everything for you. That's right. So if I said that a, a skirt rustle made the sound of rustling, then it would be for the reader to imagine, and if they are engaged, they will see the fabric, the color, the length, all of that is filled in very quickly. It's that generation that the reader makes that is pleasure, I think. That is the pleasure of, of imagining something. And I think that when we find a book that we really, really love, we have this experience of, I do anyway, thinking, I feel like I wrote it. I feel like I when I'm reading... Mrs. Dalloway. I think, oh, I, I, I wrote that. I, I created that. Well, you certainly lived it. You lived through it. And you do create it. You create parts of it. The reader yeah. creates yeah. the book. And no a question. book is a different book in every reader's hands. But they have to be engaged. There has to be that contract at the beginning. And everybody picks up books that, you know, they read the first page. And, and it might be a brilliant book, but they're, they're not in that book. I think it's, as you're right, I think it's a gift uh, to be transported that way. And I think the thing that's maybe a bit scary for uh, our generation is to look at the next generation and to see how completely absorbed they are in these various sources of entertainment that do all that stuff for them. And possibly they'll miss out on this wonderful experience of being transported by using your own imagination while reading. I think it's a kind of pleasure that will always be there. I think people will always crave that. 
I, I'm not concerned about the book becoming extinct like the Pine Martin. I think it's a, a unique experience that we will continue to love. The shape of the novel will change, or the shape of the poem or whatever. The form that you actually sort of sift it through your mind will change. Yes, but the, but the experience of wanting to engage with the printed page, I think, will always be there. Just in closing, I, I, I talked about these uh, lovely choice, these well-turned phrases. Uh, I want you to read a few of your favorites out. Okay, it's a sex scene. Are you ready? I'm always ready for a sex scene. Frank had fallen in love with her while they were having sex. She watched it happen. She fully expected to be caught and perhaps beaten up for taking his money. She had just met this guy in a bar and she went home with him and what happened was her eyes flew open and his eyes were already open and she'd had an orgasm, which was something that had never happened to her before. And it had happened to her, unbidden and unexpected. Her eyes flew open and his were already open. He looked proud and shy. She had been swallowing jello shooters in the bar, layered globs of vodka and tequila and creme de menthe with a tiny wizened mushroom in the center of each layer. She found herself convulsed with weeping after the orgasm, a wrung-out, lust-fueled loss of self, an expulsion of her soul through her eyes and sweat glands and vagina and ears, such as only happens in dreams. Frank dealt with her crying the way one might treat a run-over cat. He moved her gingerly and with lavish care until her forehead was resting on his collarbone. He kept very still. He smoothed her hair, which was full of static from his sweater, and he didn't actually touch the hair, but patted down the brittle aura of electricity that circled her head. <laughs> so, I've ruined it for you now. You know what happens. No wonder we're addicted to sex. <laughs> Who's addicted? I'm not addicted. Lisa Moore, the author of Alligator. Thank you very much for well, thank you. sharing your thoughts about this wonderful new book. Thank you, Nigel. Alligator is uh, published by well, it's Grove Atlantic in the United States. It's Virago in England, and in Canada it is... Anansi, House of Anansi. House of Anansi.